This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin, and with me this week are two just stupendous human beings. I have Tia Vasilio. Hello. And Paul Jaceley. Hello. Thank you both for joining me this week, and thank you, everyone out there, for listening. I know I don't say that enough at the top of the show. I'm saying it this week. Thank you so much for your time, as always. But you know what? It's it's wild times. Lots of things are changing constantly. It seems as if comic books are coming back, question mark. Who knows? Uh, we're going to find out very soon. Probably not this week on the show, but in the future episodes. So let's just move on. Let us let me ask the question I ask every single week, because I gotta. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Tia. I have been. So let's move right along. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I time doesn't really mean anything to me anymore, so I couldn't actually tell you when I've read these, but I have read uh, the first handful of issues of The Ludocrats. Nice. Uh, I don't remember if I read 1, 2, and 3, or just 1 and 2 and saw the cover for 3. <laughs> I can't, as I said, nothing means I don't know. But um, mm-hmm. it's coming out on the twentieth, I think. I, or at least that is what the new image releases say. So everybody should definitely mm-hmm. read this. It's Kieran Gillen and Jim Rosniel writing, and the art is Jeff Stokely and Tamara Bonvillain. I think Jim was originally gonna do the art, and then like other stuff happened. And I feel like I'm really pleased with how it all kind of like landed because Jeff Stokely is like perfect for this book and, and Tamara's colors are just so like just the, the whole tone of the book is extremely fun and vibrant and like so much painstakingly bizarre detail. It's just perfect. It's so perfect. Yeah. The preview pages I've seen for this look wild and fun, and I'm so excited to have this book in my hands. Oh, yeah. It's, well, at least my digital hands, probably. It's totally <laughs> ridiculous. Just full tilt fun. And there's, I will warn you, there's a lot of penis in this book. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and a lot of really raunchy jokes. But again, like, the ludicrousness of it is such that it it doesn't, It's there's nothing, like, uncomfortable or exploitative about it. It's just, like hilarious and so basically like the the story is that Otto and Professor Hades who are is Otto is the great big giant character with the spite belt buckle and Mm -hmm. Professor Hades is like the little bitty tiny one with the like pointy hair and the glasses and they go to a wedding slash execution and uh, mm-hmm. Otto falls in love with a, a lady there who is subsequently, like, uh, arrested. And so he goes to rescue her in, like, disgusting and ludicrous fashion. It's amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that's been fun to read. I've also been reading. Um, so Simon Hanselman is posting Megan Mogg comic strips on his Instagram every day. And they are so fucking brutal. Like, I literally did not think this book could get any more, like, dark. But holy shit. <laughs> oh, good. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's And it, I will warn everyone that it is COVID-related. Like, it's about what's happening with Meg and Mog and Owl and, and everybody in quarantine. And, I mean, like, the, la- the Bad Gateway, which was the last Meg and Mog book, was, like did kind of take more of a dark turn than some of the previous books and so it and it is in continuity with the stuff that has happened already uh the comic strips that he's posting and you're just like god damn okay <laughs> well that that makes me both scared and excited to read more <laughs> megan mog <laughs> <laughs> um what about you paul how have you been what have you been reading um i've been good i've been able to you know convince myself that it's okay to just read comics all day you know it took me a while to Mm -hmm. get to a point where that was my routine instead of my normal you know uh routine but uh so in that sense i've been reading a ton of stuff a couple things in particular i wanted to talk about since they're the most recent um i read superman up in the sky this is the story that tom king wrote with art by andy kubert um colors by brad anderson and clayton coles on letters this is the story that King and Kubert were doing for the DC Walmart 100 page whatever's a while back. It's finally been collected in a collection. 
got it my hands on it digitally. And, um, you know, I was curious. I wanted to read, you know, a Tom King Superman story. I've read Tom King's Batman. What's Tom King going to do with Superman in a big story like this? And um, this is a very Tom King comic. And <laughs> sometimes that doesn't quite work for me, and other times it does. Um, so this was a very mixed bag for me, really. I liked the premise of it and the theme of it, which is that Superman is trying to find a young girl who'd been kidnapped and taken into space. So the whole story is him trying to track down this girl. And every chapter is a reiteration of the fact that Superman's greatest strength isn't physical or a superpower. It's that he never gives up, you know, no matter what the, 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 um, cost or whatever. The problem with that is that, um, the, each chapter sort of functions individually and you don't really get a sense of the overall story. Superman shows up on a planet. There's some, uh, terrible challenge or obstacle he has to overcome. He does that. And then you're off to the next chapter. There's no connective tissue. Like why he goes from one planet to the next is never explained really. So it's Mm -hmm. like a series of vignettes rather than a story. And it plays into Tom King's sort of like, um, his gimmicky bag of tricks. Mike, you've read his Batman, (laughs) right? So I was going to say, yeah, yeah. sometimes Batman's just somewhere and you don't know why. And (laughs) you know what? You're never going to know why. (laughs) And you know, the thing where he does the one issue where it's all splash pages with dialogue boxes on it. Like he does that. Oh yeah. There's a couple, there's a couple chapters which are clearly dreams and you feel realize the dream of the last page. And like this probably would have read better week to week or month to month, but reading it all in one go, those ticks became kind of annoying to me. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, there is stuff I liked. I think the, the, like I said, the theme of it is really good. He, King does do the big Superman things you're supposed to do in a big Superman story. He, he meets up with Darkseid, confronts him. There's the Superman versus Flash race, which, you know, is a old standby. So none of it's bad. It's just, I think the, it, it was a microscope or a, a magnifying glass on the things about Tom King that I sometimes find annoying in his writing. Right. I will say the last chapter is really great. When you finally get Superman doing Superman things, like punching dudes really hard, like, yeah, that's kind of what I wanted. So finally, <laughs> you get that. Um, but overall, I did get the sense that it was a story that knew it was supposed to be big and important, but Tom King tries to subvert the tropes to a point where it doesn't feel important at all, if that makes sense. Interesting. That said, I did, uh, out of curiosity, go and look up re- reviews of it after I finished it because I was curious what other people thought. And mm-hmm. basically every review I saw was completely glowing, said it's one of the best Superman stories of the decade. So <laughs> your your mileage, as they say, may vary. So Sure. Um, the other thing I read, another collection that popped up recently um, digitally was the DC First Issue Special Collection. Now, if you don't know what this is, back in the mid-70s, the uh, comic book market was in a slump, as it often is, apparently. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, they realized that the uh, the thing that was always sells consistently is first issues. So someone pitched, maybe as a joke, to um, Carmen Infantino, who was a publisher of DC at the time, that they should do a series that's all just first issues. So they did that. And so you have 13 number one issues published under the banner of DC First Digital Special. This ran from 75 to 76. And um, it's a very mixed bag, obviously, since every issue is basically introduction to a new character or a revamped character. And the idea is that readers would write in and say, hey, I want to hear, I want to see more of this character. Or I like this story, bring this back in a regular series. So um, there's some really good stuff in here. Uh, You get three Jack Kirby issues. He does Atlas, um, which is basically a retelling of the Greek myth of Atlas, obviously. And then um, Manhunter, which is great. And then the Dingbats of Danger Street, which is a comedy strip, which is really interesting. Okay. Um, uh, Steve Ditko revamps his character, The Creeper, for this. Uh, Bob Haney and Ramona Fraden do a Metamorpho story because they created Metamorpho back in the mid-60s. And this is a reintroduction of the character. Um, mm-hmm. But my favorite book, the, I'm only halfway through it, but I needed to talk about one issue in particular because I loved it so much. And I'm not sure if I was supposed to or not. <laughs> but that is... Lady Cop by Robert Kaninger, uh, John Rosenberger, and Vince Coletta. Lady Cop is about a young lady who is a cop. And that's, and it turns out she's the most awesome character I've ever read. So, this right away from the get go, this title somehow feels offensive, right? Like, right, like right. They, come on, dudes. Like, come on. So, but here, so here's the thing. I, again, I'm not sure if I was supposed to like this. I'm not sure if it's a good comic, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. I had a great time reading it. Okay. The story is that it's about a young woman named Liza Warner. Uh, She witnesses the murder of her roommates. She's hiding under her bed while her roommates are being murdered. And she uh, 
thinks that she can find the killer because she remembers what kind of boots he was wearing. Uh, okay. While she's giving her testimony, the the police officer who's taking her like account says, we could use some more women like you on the force. So she enrolls in the police academy and then graduates and becomes a, a police officer. And the issue is basically her on the beat one day. And Lady Cop is basically a superhero. Um, at one point in the story... During the graduation from police academy, a disgruntled former police officer shows up with a grenade and throws it. Lady Cop catches a live grenade in midair and like throws it in a trash can so it doesn't hurt anybody. <laughs> I and, mean, I would it would only have been yes. better if she had happened to have a baseball bat in her hand <laughs> right. and had batted it back at him. Right, right. Uh, from there, you have her like taking down street gangs, like breaking up drug dealers. Um, Mm-hmm. At one point, she rescues a woman who's being um, sort of battered by her boyfriend. And then the woman runs away before she can give her testimony. And the lady cop, the next day, overhears the same woman on the payphone in the street talking to someone that she's worried that she might have venereal disease. So lady cop oh, tracks no. this woman down, which is a giant HIPAA violation, of course, right? Mm-hmm. Tracks her down and says, don't worry, we can get you treatment. VD's not the end of it. She's able to convince the woman not to kill herself because of her venereal disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of how the issue ends. Uh, with her, the whole while this is happening, Lady Cop's always sort of proving to her partners that she's just as tough as they are. Um, so you have a comic that is attempting to do a sort of um, progressive social commentary, but in the most ham-fisted way possible. So, right, right. I'm again, I don't think it's a particularly good comic, but I, I read it twice because I liked it so much. And I don't know what that says about me or, or anything else. But anyway, unfortunately, Lady Cop doesn't come back. Uh, I would love to get a revamped new version of Lady Cop. So DC Comics, if, you, if you're looking for something new, bring back Lady Cop. I think she deserves a, a, a second look, as it were. Hmm. Well, uh, I think we've all discovered that Paul needs to stop this constant comic reading all the time because it's starting to melt his brain. They That's warned true. us this in school, and That's look true. what's happening to Paul. No, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't tell like what's you, good or not anymore. I can't yeah, tell yeah. a good comic from bad comic anymore. You know what? If it's good to you, that's 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 all that matters. Exactly. You know, if yeah. you enjoyed it, that's that's all that matters. Well, <laughs> um, for me, um, I have been doing okay um all things considered i am simply just dying to leave my apartment not that i don't like it here that i don't like you know my cats or you know kelly or anything like that i just want to be somewhere else for an hour um but we're you know i think a lot of people are at that stage um but beyond that i have been reading lots of manga but i decided i would not read i would read something else that wasn't manga so i sat down and I did read some manga. This is Drops of God, Volume 4 and 5, um, with, written by Tadashi Agi with art by Shu Okimoto. We read this for the Discord Book Club this past week. Um, thank you for everyone that came out to that. It was really fun to talk about wine. Drops of God is a story about wine. I know that I've talked about it a ton on the show, so I don't know if I need to go into it. But for those who don't know, brief overview... Um, Our main character, his dad, was a former wine critic, the type of person that could influence the price of wine across the world. Um, He passes away and says, the only way you can inherit my $2 billion wine estate, uh, $2 billion, or 2 billion yen, I guess, um, estate full of wine and a mansion and all this stuff is if you find these 12 special wines that I've described in my will, as well as the one that I'm calling the Drops of God. It's the best or his favorite wine, um, and he's only going to give them descriptions on it. Uh, So it's him and his very recently, less than two weeks before his dad died, adopted brother who's a full-grown adult. Um, They are competing against each other to try to find these wines, and his brother is this also well-renowned film critic, or excuse me, wine critic, Um, but our main character knows nothing about wine. In fact, he works at a beer company, and so hijinks ensue um i'm into volume four and five um these are the comicsology original reprints that cut the volume length in half compared to the original printing from vertical comics uh, that means about, about technically halfway through volume three of the original um run that came out uh, unfortunately the original run only lasted four volumes so eight volumes in total it's a super bummer, but luckily Comixology has picked up, and I think they are planning to publish the whole thing right now. I think 23 or 24 volumes are out, which is really, really cool. It's a 44-volume series, so I'm, I'm very excited to read through all of it. Um, nonetheless, a lot of magic has happened in this series. This is a very realistic series about wine that does a very good job of educating the reader about wine, but so far... A family business has been saved thanks to wine. A woman's amnesia was cured thanks to wine. Two old friends who hadn't seen each other in many, many years
years were reunited because of wine. This book has everything, and I know that it's only going to get wilder as the series goes on, so I'm very excited to keep reading. We are still only in French wine for this series. They're going to go further into exploring Italian wine and Australian wine and American <laughs> wine. There's 44 volumes here, folks. They can't... It's, <laughs> It's, it's a wild ride. Um, I love it so much. Um, and I'm glad that we got to discuss it on the Discord because it was really fun to hear everyone just kind of goof off about the how ridiculous this book is. Um, uh, beyond that, I also read The Flintstones Volume 1. This is the DC, we just acquired Hasbro, so we got to put out something about with all these properties um, volume. Uh, this is written by Mark Russell with art by Steve Pugh and Chris Chuckery um, with letters by David Sharp. And a friend of mine who doesn't read a lot of comics but definitely tries to lecture me about comics a lot says that this was pretty good. So I snagged it in a sale a while back along with Volume 2 to say, to see what was really up, to see if this was actually as good as, as they claimed. Um, and all in all, it wasn't bad. Uh, it's a series of one-off stories that have a lot to say about the quote-unquote world while twisting the Flintstone characters into modern and darker versions of themselves. Um, it's somehow it doesn't lose like the whimsicality of the original cartoon. So if you don't know anything about Flintstones, I'm not going to explain it to you. I just want you to Google it and just watch the opening of the Flintstones and then watch the Jetsons and then put your tinfoil hat on, folks, because they're in the same universe. That's right. Um, but beyond that, I, I really, the I keep saying beyond that, who am I, Nick? Um, <laughs> the series is pretty fun. Um, Bam Bam and Pebbles, they're teenagers. Barney and Fred apparently fought in this great war that was fueled by nationalism. nationalism. Uh, Wilma is an artiste. Like, she stays at home and she paints, like, hand paintings, like you would expect from, like, um, the caveman times or whatever. But um, hers are different somehow there's a whole issue about it. it's very interesting um and mr slate the 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 guy who runs the quarry that bedrock the city they live in is based around is like this true scumbag he's like very rich and he plays it up like he's a playboy but he's very very sad and depressed um to the point where i was like wow we're doing this with flintstones and that's yeah so if, if you would have asked me mike how would you write a flintstones comic and make it interesting because really i don't know where else dc could have gone with this i honestly would have no idea because i'm not a writer why are you asking me but for this book um i think that the team does an excellent job of modernizing the series while keeping humor and dryness at the forefront we don't get too deep into any one character or story which allows for a kind of playful aloofness that you would expect from a comic strip or you know a cheaply made Saturday morning cartoon. I, I think that even though they modernized this book and they made it really like obvious that they were trying to take it in a new direction, it still has the charm of the Flintstones. And I was very surprised by that because hearing things like, I mean, I'm going to minorly spoil this series or parts of this book, but hearing things like the phrase yabba dabba do is a mantra given to war vets to like basically yell and say out loud when they're feeling tense because of things that they witnessed in the war really changes the way you look at Fred Flintstone when he's constantly saying it in the fucking TV show. So um, I I thought it was like, again, there are these things that are really dark and kind of humorous. And I think that you can have a good time reading this book. Like I never felt bored because the way that the series is structured is just like little one-off issues that kind of tie together. Um, It's really, really clever. Um, And and I shouldn't say really clever, but it's really fun and it's easy to read. Um, I I would say that this definitely is not a book for everyone. Like it's got a lot of political jabs and knocks on religion and materialism and all that. It's, It's right there in your face. They are not trying to hide it. They get really, really serious about taking an analogies for, um, uh, for like re- actual real human people um, and j- injecting them right into the story and then constantly making fun of them or making them the butt of some jokes just to like express some belief or something that they're trying to say in the book. Um, they did a whole issue about how marriage between like, like monogamy is the weird thing in the world because people in caveman times or whatever, they were all polyamorous. I don't know. It, <laughs> Again, it's a lot of crazy stuff. Um, but I, I think for an off-the-cuff read, I, I think it was pretty decent. It's, I'm going to probably read volume two because there's only two volumes. I don't think I could read an ongoing of this. But um, for, for the two volumes that they've got, I'm, I'm on board. I'll finish it up. Yeah, I really liked it. I, I It's far better than a Flintstones comic probably has the, the right to be. I was really stunned sure. how much I liked it. So, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, the alternative is that, like, DC just tells a 60s-era 
or 70s era Flintstone story with the same old cartoonish style. Right. And I think that that could work if you're trying to sell to a younger audience. But clearly DC, with all of their Hasbro <laughs> works, were just like, hey, how, how can we make this like Batman the Damned, but it's Flintstone, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, without going into the, putting it into their black label or whatever, it's still <laughs> just like, they, they were trying to modernize it. And I think they did that with a lot of their other stuff and it yeah. worked out pretty okay. Like Snagglepuss, I think, was supposed to be very good. I have yet to read that. Yeah, me too. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess beyond comics, um, how ha- what have you guys been into outside of things? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna toss back to you, Tia. What have you been into when you know you're not sitting down reading comics? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's coming, and I'm very very yeah. excited. <laughs> so I, I will actually have two things, but they are under the same umbrella as um, you know. I don't know. I don't. I guess I don't really really talk about it that much. But my uh, partner lives in LA. And so we have been in a long distance relationship and flying back and forth to see each other like every six weeks or so. Um, We have not seen each other since January. And we don't know when we will see each other again. And it sucks a lot. That's tough. So we've been doing a lot of like, basically just like living our lives together on virtual like chat like virtual video chat and Mm -hmm. the two things that we have just been like obsessed with that we've been doing together constantly are uh well the first one is everyone knows that i am super into gymnastics right Uh, no Mm -hmm. i really i didn't and um (laughs) he is super into like mma fighting so we do a thing where we'll each pick like a video on youtube like i'll pick a like a gymnastics meet he'll pick a fight and we'll like take turns watching them together and like commentating for the other person oh and Mm -hmm. it has been so much fun and like honestly when the quarantine ends you know we're gonna keep doing this in person and hopefully we'll be able to actually like go to fights or go to gymnastics meets in person but like (laughs) we you know and 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 we it's like a you know we know about it now you know he he knows and he's like starting to, to like understand some of the nuances of watching gymnastics and i'm starting to like understand some of the nuances of the fighting and so mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it's just that's been a really fun thing that we've been doing together and uh yeah uh, i don't know if there's a lot of sports fans out there but anyway the other thing that we've been doing is that just sounds really cool i just want to say that that is like like <laughs> yeah. two sports that are very very far apart i think that's really cool that you guys have been able to do that <laughs> let me tell you our youtube algorithms are very confused <laughs> <laughs> i believe that yeah. sorry continue, continue uh so the other thing that we've been doing like okay look we don't I personally do not have any bandwidth or attention span right now. Um, trash reality mm-hmm. TV is about all I can manage. And okay. so we have been watching a show on TLC called 90 Day Fiance. There are approximately 150,000 spinoffs. So there's so the premise of 90 Day Fiance is that um, if you are engaged to someone who is not an American citizen, you could b- apply for a K-1 visa, which lets them come to the United States for 90 days. And if you don't get married before the end of the 90 days, they have to go back to their country. So okay. as you can imagine, that causes a lot of problems for these couples because like, they can't work while they're here. They can't do anything really so oh, right. you know they're like totally dependent on their american fiance they there's all sorts of like in many cases culture clashes and you mm-hmm. know differences of religion and they're like totally isolated they don't have their friends and family here with them like you know it's very drama and then there's always that relative the, who's like you're just here for a green card and they're like bitch i want right. to go home i left my friends and family <laughs> to come here <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, um, so in the, in the show, are they like taking their fiance around to meet their friends and family and stuff? Like now that they've come from wherever country they came from to America, there's not necessarily like a a formula for this show. It just is kind of, it, like every case is a little bit different. But yeah, they're like 
in most cases, meeting their friends and family and preparing for the wedding. And also most of them have never really lived together. Like Mm. a lot of them met online, Mm -hmm. but also there are a good like number of them who met when like the American person was traveling abroad or something like that. So their relationship is mostly taken place either online or on vacation or in a vacation like setting. So the show is like really the first time that they're, living together in a normal life okay uh yeah so as you could about but the but the the real fun of this show is the spinoffs there's 90 day fiance the other way where the american moves to their country that's super fun when the person lives in like a country that is extremely different from the united states Um, (laughs) I, i think i've seen clips from that i think there was a guy really short guy who went to like i think it was like cambodia or something okay and he was just confused so if i think you're talking about big ed who i think that's yeah yeah yeah. that is actually a show called before the 90 days which is oh my lord (laughs) the couples are not officially engaged yet so Oh, yeah, wow. but often it does involve the American going overseas to to visit because I think that in order to get the K one visa, you have to have like spent actual physical time together. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he goes to the Philippines and that's where yeah, 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 it's not going great for Ed. I have to say he's yeah, yeah. it's not going great for him. Um, and and the before the ninety days is also a wild show. Like there was one where the, there was this like nineteen year old American girl from Ohio who converted to Islam, and then went on to like a Muslim dating app, met a guy from Syria, and got engaged to him online. So they like meet up in Lebanon and get married. And now she's like, oh, right, there's a travel ban. My Syrian husband cannot get a visa to come to the United States. So I guess I'm moving to Syria. And her mom's like, um, pause. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. Okay. So this is just TLC's bread oh my and god! The show is the show is amazing, um, and then there is like a quarantine special that's going on right now that's actually kind of devastating because a lot of these couples are, uh, you know, due to visas and quarantine, you know, like separated for an indefinite period mm-hmm. of time. It's really sad. But there are so many traits. There's like categories of people on these shows that are fascinating. Like there's always a like 50 something year old man with a Ukrainian 25 year old girlfriend who he met on this website where you just like send them money all the time. And these, (laughs) and then like these men will set up these elaborate vacations and the women will just not show up and they'll be like, Oh gee, she, her, her, it was her mother's birthday and she couldn't make it. And you're just like, Oh honey. Oh no. But then, and then conversely, there are all of these like 50 year old women from the South who have these 20 year old boyfriends from either the middle East or Africa and you're just like hmm okay yes <laughs> okay okay yeah <laughs> oh. so tia what you're saying is that this is going to be the next big watch party that we do as a group um <laughs> it's honestly just the most fascinating thing and right, like right. i'm it's getting a little more crazy now that it's been on for a while and people are really into it but um mm-hmm. In the early days, it was kind of, it was more of, it had more of like a documentary feel. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. I, I, I've been tempted. I've seen, like I said, I've seen <laughs> clips of this and I'm like, maybe I, do I take the plunge? Do I just do it and say like, this is what I'm doing with my free time now? <laughs> They're like um, all on Hulu. Who knows? Yeah, that's, oh, that's no. kind of what I figured. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll check some out and get back to you on it just to let you know where my thoughts are. On this. <laughs> like it makes us feel better about our situation because like we could relate to the, you know, the unfairness of like the distance and all of that stuff. But then we're also mm-hmm. just like, God, at least we're not that much of a train wreck. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, great. Um, Paul, what about you? What are you, what have you been into besides comics? Uh, well, uh, I've also been watching a lot of stuff, which is kind of nice. I usually don't have time to watch as much TV or movies as I would mm-hmm. like, so mm-hmm. I, now I do have the time. Um, I did 
plow through the first season of What We Do in the Shadows, uh, the FX show based on the film, um, which is I surprisingly liked because I'm basically the only person in the world who didn't like that movie. Um, oh my god, so... I did not like that movie either. Oh, okay, okay, good, good. I, I okay. I felt like it was so popular and being talked about among com- comedy circles with this reverence. And I'm like, I didn't like it. But the show is so much better. I think maybe that concept of a bunch of ancient vampires trying to live, you know, uh, in the United States, in our modern world, worked better as a sitcom than it does a 90 minute movie. I just so. don't sure. think that director knows how to make a feature length film. And I <laughs> am speaking of other popular films as well. Well, Tia, oh. you, and, you and I are on the same page, and that's oh. might be the first time that's happened. Yeah, he's good uh, at... You guys can send your hate mail directly to ircbpodcast at gmail.com, um, and I will make sure that Tia and Paul never see it. You know what? No, <laughs> it's you. fine. I will die on this hill. He's good at sketch comedy, not films. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hence, Paul... Uh, I see that. Yeah. Paul is correct. The, the show is better. Yeah, so I really enjoyed that. I, I will say that um, the first season I really enjoyed, like, I think I watched the first three episodes of season two so far, and it wasn't clicking for me as much. Um, and I don't want to assume it's because uh, Tom Sharpling, host of The Best Show, worked on the first season and not the second, but that's part of what I'm assuming is the case, I why see. it doesn't work for me. But um, other stuff I've watched, I finally uh, bit the bullet and signed up for the Criterion channel. So uh, film buffs know the Criterion collection is sort of a cataloging and um, uh, what's wrong, restoration of classic films. They sort of uh, create a sort of um, a collection of films that are important culturally or aesthetically. And um, it's a lot of foreign films, a lot of art house stuff, but they have a nice cross section of film history there. And if you're a film buff like me, it's a great resource to watch that stuff. So I've been watching some classic movies over there. Um, I watched Throne of Blood by Akira Kurosawa. It came out in 1957. That's basically his version of Macbeth, but set in feudal Japan instead of Scotland. Fantastic cool. movie. Uh, I've watched Police Story that Jackie Chan oh. wrote and directed in 1985. Yeah. That movie is fucking awesome. I loved it so much. Yeah, um, I love that movie. Yeah, so great. And then um, I watched The Age of Innocence, uh, Martin Scorsese's 1993 adaptation of the Edith Wharton uh, book, uh, which is surprising. I'd never seen that before because uh, it, it's directed by Martin Scorsese, who I love dearly, and it features Winona Ryder, who is my eternal all-time number one celebrity crush. Uh, I'd never somehow never watched The Age of Innocence until now, and um, it's great. Uh, it, was, it might be top five Scorsese for me. I might have to rewatch it, actually. But yeah, it's been fun to go back and actually give myself time and uh, patience to sit through all this stuff and uh, finally watch these movies that have been on my to-watch list for a while. So Very nice. Yeah. And on top of that, I've uh, gotten back into doing collages regularly. I have a lot of creative energy and it's tough to find time to do it. And that's a very stress-free, relaxing thing to do um, if uh, you're in the same boat. So get out those old magazines and your glue stick and start collaging, I guess. I love how I'm like MMA and trash reality TV. And Paul's like (laughs) collaging and the Criterion Collection. (laughs) We have our, each, each person has their different way of coping, you know, their own comfort that they find in this stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, and mine is the most childish of them all. Um, I played Pokemon Go for four hours yesterday straight um, <laughs> because they, the people who make the Pokemon Go game have figured out how to make it a game that is strictly tied to you moving and walking around, playable from home. Um, so, <laughs> like you said, we, we each have our own way of dealing with things, but it, it was actually pretty fun. I don't know. I think that they've, they've managed, for people like me who really like that game and have been playing it like constantly, um, they really made it work. Um, for the most part, I think there's still some snags, but you know it's they've been adapting very quickly to um, the the life of the world shut down, and I think that they've been able to convince people to continue playing, which has been good. Um, but yesterday was a was a, an event that I had signed up for. I was supposed to be in Philadelphia yesterday, um, actually for this event that was like in life, real life where you go to a park and you walk around and do all this stuff and there are vendors that are specifically there from Pokemon. Um, and unfortunately, that that couldn't happen. So they essentially said, if you are a person that bought this ticket to go to this thing here, you can play it at home and you can do all this stuff and catch the special version of Pokemon and blah, 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 blah. It was pretty fun. Um, I, I did that for, you know, sitting at my desk for about four hours straight because... <laughs> Yeah, um, but beyond that, um, Kelly and I uh, spent Thursday night building a standing desk for me, so now I'm a fucking computer wizard who can essentially stand up and control the multiverse from 
a standing desk position. I don't know why it makes me feel so powerful, but it truly, truly does. Um, I, I, I did some work where I had to migrate some domains from one registrar to another, which probably means nothing to most people. But, you know, if destroy the side dot. DestroyTheCyborg.com or DestroyTheCyborg.org stops working for you and your podcatcher is not picking up new episodes or something weird's happening, let me know. But it should all be settled. That happened this past week. Um, you know, it's, it's very fun, nerdy stuff. I just I find it really cool to take all the knowledge that I have and just go, oh, this is really, really easy now compared to 10 years ago. And I was like, I would cry because I couldn't figure out how to do something as simple as running a couple commands in a terminal. Um, but I guess, and on top of that, um, I did watch Birds of Prey finally. Kelly and I nice. sat down and watched that, and I really liked it. Mm-hmm. I think, like, as far as DC movies are concerned, like, I don't even want to compare it to DC movies because I don't think that that is a fair comparison anymore because it's train wreck over there. Instead, I think that Birds of Prey was just a good, solid, like, action hero story i think the way that it all came together was really fun um i don't think it's the best movie in the world i think that there were some holes in it that that could have easily been fixed but um on the whole it was a very enjoyable film i think Mm -hmm. like the entire cast is fantastic um i really 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 loved mary elizabeth weinstead coming in as huntress it was probably some of the funniest moments in that movie um it's her just being huntress and being this awkward yet incredibly aggressive character all in one and she plays Mm -hmm. it perfectly um and yeah i i had a good time watching it um but also i sat down kelly and i sat down last night and watched the gentleman which is uh guy Ritchie's latest film this is matthew mcconaughey uh and a bunch of other people whose names are escaping me right now um but it's it's another guy Ritchie film right if you like snatch if you like lock stock at two smoky barrels if you like any of the other like heist movies that he's done this is another one of those and i think guy Ritchie, i always worry would have a tr- would have trouble adapting his kinds of stories to a modern era like cell phones immediately fix all the problems in his other movies <laughs> so how do you deal with a movie that is it takes place in you know 2019 2020 um and they have cell phones and so i think he does a really good job of making sure that everything is timed really well which has always been a feature of all of his films timing is incredibly crucial so even with a cell cell phone just because you are able to send someone a text message um don't get in the car doesn't mean they haven't already gotten in the car. So, like, I, I think that that's, like, a really, really cool um, thing about his uh, about that movie is that he still manages to make his whole goofy antics and timing and stuff still work, even in a modern age, um, beyond just the, the awkward storytelling and Hugh Grant being a total bozo for the whole movie, which is very, very fun to see Hugh Grant in this just kind of dumbass position. Um, I, I really had a lot of fun watching that. So um, that's what I've been into. It's been I've I've been trying to watch more movies, and I've picked some good ones recently. Nice. Um, but yeah, so let's let's take a break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about beyond movie adaptations, how the comics industry and how comics in general have impacted society in other media. So let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with that. For our show this week, we are talking about how comics have influenced society and other media. And we're not just talking about movies here. We're talking about all sorts of different things. So I guess to get things started, Paul, you you of the three of us seem to have the most notes on this. So we're going to start with you. Where do you see comics influencing media and society? And then, you know, Tia, if you have some ideas, go ahead and jump in whenever you want. Uh, but Paul, let's start with you. What are your some of your first thoughts on this? Well, right off the bat, and I want to preface this with the big caveat that I'm not trying to lump in superheroes as a genre with comics as a medium. I think, you know, I think that all too often they get lumped together. But Agreed. I th- I think that superheroes as a genre that, you know, have become incredibly popular over the past 80 years and a fundamental part of our shared collective mythology, they wouldn't exist without comics. They're obviously... Uh, sort of ancestors or influential you know, predecessors in the pulp and science fiction magazines. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty obvious that, you know, Doc uh, Savage becomes Superman uh, and that the shadow becomes Batman. But what separates Superman and Batman from those pulp characters is the visual dynamism of their appearance, right? Mm-hmm. So you, I, I think the, the format and medium of comics 
lent itself to creating a whole new genre of storytelling that, as we've seen, has become incredibly influential and financially lucrative. And I think we wouldn't have that without comics. And then superheroes become a way for each culture and each time period to express their values through this different storytelling, whether it's in comics or in a film. But I think it, it, its root is in Action Comics number one from 1938. That's where that genre begins. So big picture, that's probably the most important um commercially at least for comics influence yeah I, I, and i mean i can absolutely say that and i think that the the strange thing about this is i think a lot of what we might be talking about today is probably superhero based yeah. but i i mean that beyond just superheroes because i think you know you can see superheroes in in their influence all over right like even mm-hmm. things like ch- charity foundation artwork will have a superman-esque character flying across as someone that is like the the thing that is helping children or something like that yeah i'm more in specific i think there's like a specific foundation that I'm thinking of that uses that. I can't remember what they're called, but they don't necessarily have any relation to comics or to DC or anything like that. But using that 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 visual, that image and iconography just to show off like a some sort of superhero influence, um, I don't think that necessarily is completely found just in comics, but it is, I think, the most recognizable in modern times. Mm-hmm. Um, the, one, the one thing that weirdly popped into my head, though, when I was thinking about this was pop-up video. I don't know if you guys watched that show back in the day on vh1 um where they would show a music video and then they would pop up little blurbs and things like that um you could definitely see and i I, at least i choose to see like an influence coming directly from comics you know the idea (laughs) of captions popping up in the middle of a book um or of a story um and then to move that to a different medium to to try to convey similar information on a moving picture where your your reading time is limited um and maybe it's a music video that you're familiar with so it becomes a lot easier for you to take in that information um but i think that that's like a direct spinoff from from comics especially in the way that they presented it not to say that captions are the original thing just in comics but i think that idea of of captioning things like that on the fly um has a heavy comic influence especially in that show where they would use thought bubbles and they would Mm -hmm. use different things that i think are very synonymous with comic books um and i just missed that show i thought that was a really fun (laughs) thing back when when music videos were the only way to get new music right uh sure yeah well, yeah, I think that's something we all have this in our notes. So it's something we all hit on this idea that the visual language of comics has sort of transcended the medium and become sort of a universal language. Everyone knows what a word bubble is or what a sound effect is, right? So, yeah, yeah. I guess like I took a little bit of a different uh, interpretation of the topic because, mm-hmm. you know, I I think that the thing that comics have that's unique that can impact society and other media is that they put art with text, which is a more multi-layered form of expression or communication than just one or the other. Um, mm-hmm. And that, but by having them together, they can create shared uh languages of visual culture so that eventually the image alone like can stand on its own with a single interpretation and historically comics have been used to create these shared languages of visual culture um mm-hmm. you know this is if you look at historical like you know pamphlets and broadsides and and things like that you know um eventually they can get distilled into these images that have a meaning that if you were not part of that moment and uh, kind of eased into the art and text creating a, a meaning by their interplay, you may look at the image and have not have the same understanding of it because you weren't uh, kind of brought up in that context or conversely the the context becomes less potent uh i don't know i guess like i wasn't thinking of it so much in terms of like movies or or other media and more in terms of the way that we look at and understand images mm-hmm. well yeah i think that's an important point too because that comics are far more accessible historically than maybe what we consider fine art or high art. So I think the ability for a medium to have 
a sort of visual impact and to have that sort of influence on people, you know, uh, is incredibly important because it's more accessible. Right. And I think, again, it's something that Mike, you have your notes as well. This idea that comics influence on art in general and how we understand visual images and how we interpret them can't be discounted. Right. And in fact, might be more important than whatever's hanging in the Louvre right now. Right. Since more people can see it. Right. I mean, I think I, I don't want to start getting my soapbox, uh, right away, but, um, you know, Jack Kirby is arguably the most influential American artist post-World War II, right? More people have seen a Jack Kirby comic than have seen an Andy Warhol painting. And he Maybe. introduced he introduced pop art to a whole generation and changed the visual dy- dynamism of art, of art in comic books and art in general, right? And I think there's a democratization of that that... Maybe you're speaking to Tia's idea that it becomes universal in this way and it changes the way as a culture we see things. Yeah, I don't know if I would call it democratization because I I see it more as an elite creator classes mm. cre- is actively shaping the shared cultural language. It's so mm. there's still a, oh, an aspect of gatekeeping in terms of who's allowed to make those meanings. But um, I guess in terms of it disseminating, you know, and and, and it's actually useless to have high art that is rarefied if if your goal is to create these shared meanings. Yeah, exactly. I think I I hate that distinction between higher and low art. And part of that's because I think comics are traditionally considered low art are more impactful than what's considered high art in terms of their, you know, the number of people that interact with them. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I think yeah. that the categories are useful, but the names of them certainly are very fraught. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, and I, I say this only as someone who's been to the Louvre once and I've been to the <laughs> MoMA twice. Um, uh, but I, I think that's, that's interesting to, to think about the idea of this idea, this thing of rarefied art when, you have this some something like, and I'm only going to use this as like an example. I don't, I don't know. There's probably more influential paintings or whatever. But you think of something like Starry Night, for instance, right? <laughs> some something that I think you could you could throw at any maybe adult and say, hey, "Have you heard of this thing?" And I think they would maybe have some idea, or they may have seen, or if you showed it to them, they go, "Oh yeah, I've seen that before," but I just don't know where because it's a it's a painting that for some reason has you know existed for a very long time and has been recreated in many different ways, and people are obsessed with it. And you've got like you know homages and all these different things, representations in different forms of art that are like saying, "Oh well, I know that this thing is influential, therefore I include it as an homage to say like, oh I I understand this," or to just add some sort of um. I, I don't know, like understandable that like, I know that the difference between like what I'm doing and what this thing is. Um, and, but yet yeah, that, that something like that, that painting or any, any other thing like the Mona Lisa to go to like the default painting that everybody knows exists because it's been included in so many things. And, you know, the theft created this fame and all this other stuff. Um, it's interesting because those paintings, I think still have some sort of layer of influence, but what they do is a single note right compared to something like a comic that is able to tell a whole story even in a single page you can do a lot more in terms of storytelling i think than you probably could with like just a static um painted image or a statue or something like that um mm-hmm. but like th- i think the 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 thing about comics is that they're mass produced and that they are available to more people and that they are more like you said more accessible that makes things um uh Sorry, there was a phone ringing. I totally lost half of my thought. Um, but I, I, it's interesting to think that we would say that one is more influential than the other when I think that these things exist and they become famous and then people know about them. Um, but the, I think the key difference there is that the ability to tell a fuller, more in-context story is available with a comic compared to a painting because there is just more dynamicism inside of a comic because there's... You, you break things up t- in order to tell a story versus a painting probably is also telling a story, but it is something that requires interpretation and, and context that doesn't come just from the painting. Well, that's, um, does that does that thought make any thought or any, any that sense? That is entirely a function of the way that we consume images, though. It's not, mm-hmm. you True. know, I mean, and also, like, if you look at medieval paintings or Parthenon friezes or things like that, like, it's not always been that way. And we also are not in a culture that teaches us how to 
uh, extract the story from a single image because we're used to moving sure. images. We're used to TV. We're used to movies. We're you know. So I I think that there there absolutely is a story that you gl- can glean from a single image of fine art and comic books tell you the story but on the other hand comic books tell you the story it's it's a much more passive experience of getting true, a story true. and in some ways i think that is um helpful because it helps to teach people how to read you know, a visual language. I say visual language a lot. And and I, what I mean by that is, you know, the ability to understand what the images mean in in a larger context and the, the connotations of the image. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I think that having the story really kind of given to you more in comics is a good way to help people build up their ability to have a visual literacy that will allow them to then look at, you know, a single image or an abstract image even, and Mm -hmm. kind of walk themselves through pulling the story out of it. But Mm-hmm. Yeah, like going back to the distinction between high art and low art, um, as much as we don't like those terms, I think that one of the characteristics of high art is that only certain people have the ability to understand the story. Mm-hmm. But that that's required... That's, that comes from um, education, though, yes. right? That's from someone who has spent a lot of time studying these things. And it's it's tough to say, like, oh, I'm going to put you in front of this painting and you're going to get it versus someone who's spent years studying, you know, f- fine art and, and understands the types of things to look for in order to un- interpret that story. I think um, that's, that's where the key difference is, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that mm-hmm. anyone can stand in front of a, an artwork and and understand it but they do have to i think sometimes be encouraged to slow down and kind of be um have affirmation that they're kind of on the right path because you just are not confronted with that sort of thing on a regular basis and um Mm -hmm. you know whereas with comics anyone can open up a comic and, and pretty much understand the story right Right. And I guess that's maybe the kind of point I was getting at when I'm talking about um, the connection between comics and pop art. There's an obvious connection because a lot of pop artists straight up just copied comics in the 60s. But when you look at, and again, I'll I'll use Kirby as the example because he's my go-to example (laughs) for for good or bad. But if you look at some of the stuff in the Fantastic Four, the, the visual language he invents to portray unseeable forces cosmic forces you know these these sublime ideas which seem unable to be captured in an image he's finding a way to do that and that stuff uh you intuit it naturally when you're reading the comic but that idea of how do i convert a concept into a visual idea and convey it to an audience i think that becomes part of you know pop art from then on Obviously, other comic book artists kept, you know, latch onto Kirby Dots and this cosmic ideas. But like you're saying to you, like that educational process of being able to say like this, this, you know, if you just look at the flat image in the comic, the single panel, it might not make any sense. But in the flow of the story, you're learning how to interpret these signs for what they are supposed to represent. And that becomes part of your education as an interpreter of art. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why I don't really see comics impacting other media that isn't visual Mm. like Mm -hmm. i don't really see what the value of audio comics is that's (laughs) and and not to like if you enjoy those stories in audio form like i'm not trashing that i'm just saying that those are called audiobooks. We already have them. I, just because mm-hmm. they have comic characters or comic storylines doesn't make them comic, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wonder about that um, in, in a sense that, like, because I, I agree, I think it's kind of a different 
genre like not genre it's like a, it's a different medium like it is it is related it is adjacent to comics but it, it kind of is in the same vein of like i don't know if you guys ever read about this or maybe turned it on by accident but there is like netflix does a thing with some of their shows especially their original shows where they will have um sub or excuse me audio audio um layers or like an audio preference you can turn on that's not just english but it's also someone describing a scene to you um so as you're watching the show and it's specifically for visually impaired like mm-hmm. viewers um where someone is describing the way that a scene looks and the way that a character turns and all this other stuff as the dialogue is happening in order to allow people who can't necessarily see the screen kind of visualize things in their mind um and i i think that would you say that that's not necessarily TV? I don't know, um, because the, it still involves like the, the the streaming of the visual portion of it, whereas something like the audiobook version of Lock and Key, I don't think requires you to kind of have the comic in front of you. Um, but I think that those types of things, they they are comics adjacent and they are TV adjacent, but they aren't the same exact medium because the visual portion of it is crucial in a lot of ways. And I think like I'm not trying to necessarily knock on like these these things that are like accessibility tools to allow people to enjoy the same media that we do with our you know ability to see and ability to hear things properly um and and even interpret like dialogue the same way right um there are people that have this this difference like they have different um i guess perspectives on things be whether that be because of you know they they have visual impairness or they 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 understand english or they understand a different language differently um it's interesting to say that they are they are comics, but yet they aren't comics in the same way because, like, the medium is kind of very focused on these things are required in order for this to really be a comic. But then when you break away from that ability to actually see and understand things the same way, um, then the scope of what is actually a comic either grows or it becomes something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't know. Because I, I, I agree with you, Tia. Like, I don't think you're getting the same impact um, from an audiobook version of a comic than you would from visualizing it. But if you don't have that ability to see or that ability to understand something the same way, like, does it have the same impact on you? That's that's the big question that I don't think we can necessarily answer without bringing in someone who knows a little bit more. Um, right, right. But yeah, I, it's, it's, it's definitely something that is slightly different on a thing that I think we're all like we all have in common. We all understand in the same in a certain way. Well, I don't know if it's necessarily useful to... Th- to think of it this way because when you're talking about like an individual's experience that's a very different thing than talking about a cultural thing Mm -hmm. right like true the macro i'm getting a little bit away from the topic yeah the macro and the micro are two totally different things so if the if the topic is how do comics impact society and other media to me that's a macro question Whereas, like, how can we make visual media accessible to people who are visually impaired? Like, that the macro element of that is like, how accessible is our society? And that's a very important question. But the way that individual impaired people, visually impaired people experience visual media is very much, I think, a, a, a micro level, like an individual question. Absolutely, yeah, and, and again, I wasn't trying to knock your point. No, no, it's totally um, there. A that's valid uh, path to take the the topic down. <laughs> yeah, and in that case, you should go check out our episode all about accessible comics because it's a very interesting discussion, and there's a lot of people out there um, trying to make things work for people who have visual impairments and other things like that. But I guess back to the topic at hand. Um, what I, I guess my my other thought was I was going to kind of key off of something that paul said i think like cartoons in general are like a a thing that i feel like took the idea of comics and then made them more motion (laughs) um because i think you you could even say like to go back to paul's point about fantastic four you know how do you show something that's not visible um in in a visual medium um Mm -hmm. and you do things like kirby did where you draw lines in a certain way or you, you know in cartoons they'll draw like an outline around someone that the characters in the show can't see but that the the viewer obviously can see because it's hard to tell that story um without being able to see something to show that that person is there but not there at the same time right Right. It's a visual shorthand and it's a visual language that, you know, grows out of, you know, the ascent, the the uh, necessity of uh, them to do that in comic, I think. And mm-hmm. uh, to a bigger point, I think there's a uh, sort of circular influence between films and comics. Obviously, early comics were highly influenced by film, you know, sure. 
through both visual media. And now we see because of the limitless um, nature of comics to draw any type of action or scene you can imagine, that becomes part of particularly action and sci-fi movies. I think not even in the realm of an adaptation, just the visual dynamism of films has been influenced by comics, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, then another point I want to make on the flip side in a sense is that when I say comics is a democratic medium, I also mean in terms of creators where, Because comics are sort of a low entry level type of art form, you don't have to buy a lot of paint to do it. You just need a pen and a paper, you know, and it doesn't matter how many people see it. You can still express yourself in a very easy, affordable way. So that gave creators that might not have had a voice in a larger art context an entry point. I'm thinking of people like Howard Cruz with his book Stuck Rubber Baby, Alison Bechtel, even Harvey Pekar. That's a guy who never would have been an influential artist, but somehow comics gave him a voice and became one of the most important creators in comics history. So that creates a comics creates a space for people that might be neglected out of the larger artistic uh, discussion, a place for them to express themselves. So, I mean, on the other hand, it takes a lot of time to make a comic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I mean, I, I, for some reason, I just wanted to throw out the fact that Jen Bartel made a whole shoe line based off of Birds of Prey, which I realize is a movie. <laughs> um, but I thought that that's really fucking cool to see, like that level of comic, like influencing a style. Like people will go out of their way. Like this is kind of my tangent to talk about. Um, I feel like comics influencing the way that people dress to a certain yeah. extent, where you can do these like uh, these like low-level cosplays where you kind of just wear a color scheme of a character which probably isn't a new concept but i feel like i've seen it more and more in relation to comics and probably more cartoons as well where you see people like oh i'm gonna dress up as low-key dr doom and i've got like a green coat on and you know i've got like some silver gloves and uh, don't worry about the metal mask that's just a normal thing i could wear out as a person um I, I think that like these the style of of comics. I think when you especially when you look at creators like Jen Bartel or Chris Anka or uh, uh, what's his name who did all the covers for the Rainbow Rowell books. Um, oh, Kevin Wada. These people, Kevin Wada. Mm-hmm. They they draw things in such a way that people are like, I want to dress like that character. Even mm-hmm. they're a comic book character, and it's realistic and it's very stylish. Um, I, I like that idea of comics influencing fashion um, to a certain extent. Like, make, let's make cloaks come back, folks. I mean, cloaks are back. <laughs> mini cloaks are back, I think. But um, Or capes, maybe. I think mini capes are back or were back at some point. Tia, I'm going to defer to you. You know way more about <laughs> culture about and, and dress than I do. But um, well, um, I feel like I've seen people wear capes. Currently, I think... Uh sweatpants are back but um anyway we were we were actually gonna do a a sneakers panel at emerald city comic con with jen and chris and um also kari randolph and uh ramon so yeah it's definitely a thing but is that is that a thing and i this is complete tangent is that a thing because they're all sneaker heads or because they all like believe in like the fashion of sneakers as part of like the greater comics culture a little of both okay okay (laughs) Well, hopefully we could see that panel someday in the future once everyone is back to being outside um, sometime in the year 2021. Um, But uh, Well, I mean, to to expand on that point a little bit, Mike, I think that you see references to comic book culture and comic book iconography in all types of design, you know? And I think that's because people that are creative types, artistically minded, you know, they their first exposure to art might have been a comic so that becomes whether they realize or not an influence throughout the rest of their career like sure how many hip-hop artists are like referencing comic books and like using that visual media in their album covers so it becomes Mm -hmm. part of our shared collective you know um artistic expression in a sense yeah yeah mf doom man mf doom one of the the greatest rappers in my book um his whole thing is that he's victor von doom (laughs) right i I love it (laughs) right so i think maybe that speaks to the point we made earlier where you know artists who are creatively minded and just finding their voice they might not be able to go to a museum or might not be interested in that but they probably read a lot of marvel comics and that becomes their way of understanding visual media through that regard so yeah well cool um, I don't know. Do you guys have any final thoughts about this? Uh, any other ways that we want to talk about how comics impacted society and media? <laughs> I want to give my big, maybe maybe too hippy-dippy new age 
final point here is that I think comics as a medium, because they're limitless and are only limited by your imagination of what you can draw or create on a page, that has expanded and shaped our shared collective imagination in a way mm-hmm. that a lot of art forms maybe haven't. So the world we live in now was built on the dreams of Jack Kirby and other creators. Like they gave us a sense of being able to think outside of our everyday world in a way that a lot of people were access, uh, had access to. So that's my, you know, new age, you know, we're all one, the hippy dippy nonsense that mm-hmm. I want to share. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Anything from you, Tia? I'll just reiterate that visual literacy is really important and comics are a really crucial tool to uh, promoting visual literacy. Absolutely. 100% agree with both of you guys. Um, well, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, thank you for joining me today. You can follow us all on Twitter. You can follow Tia at Portrait of Madam X. You can follow Paul at Ohi Pauly. And you can follow me at Mike Rappin and the show at IRCB Podcast, where I try to post on Twitter and Instagram pretty regularly. Today, I posted a photo of my coffee mug because I do have a giant size X-Men coffee mug and I love it to death. This show and our many subscriber-only episodes are powered by fans like you on Patreon. You can join now at patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you haven't already, please rate and review our show on any platform you find your podcasts on. If I would just suggest maybe five stars would be a good rating. Um, <laughs> you can also join us on our Discord at irsbpodcast.com slash Discord. And make sure to tell a friend you are too about the show. Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all the music for our show. We can't thank them enough. Uh, Xander is the coolest guy, a great GM, and he also edits the show. I just want just to see his face and just see him smile. <laughs> just once this year uh, <laughs> i want to say thank you to paul and tia for being on this episode thank you so much and thank you to everyone out there who listens to the show and hangs out with us on discord can't wait to do our discord hangout this afternoon and until next time comics are good and so are you Mike, you were talking about how Flintstones and um, Jetsons take place in the same universe, right? <laughs> yeah. Do you know about I this, mean, yeah. this theory that like it's like Elysium, that movie? So it's like the Jetsons are the real rich people that live in this sort of, you know, um, idyllic, futuristic oh world God. above Earth. <laughs> uh-huh, and the Flintstones uh-huh. are all the poor people who are stuck on Earth. Yeah. So it's literally the same time that they're taking place. It's just capitalism right. is separating them <laughs> yeah they live up in the sky i mean i i i think that that is the funniest theory in the world because it's there there's no real reason i know i i feel like i've seen a youtube video where someone was like no if you look at the background of the flintstones you can see that there are just these towers that rise up and you don't know where they go it's like okay sure <laughs> but then but then that also explains why the great gazoo that alien shows up on the flintstones right so yeah, could be, yeah. It's, it's, there's some sci-fi element there so yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I thought that was a pretty... They, they did that whole issue about that. I was like, oh, right, yeah. the Great Kazoo. Um, <laughs> Galaxy Break! Um, <laughs> it was such a dumb episode or issue. Um, but again, it feels it felt like a like a cartoon TV series. Like, it, it was yeah, exactly. contained, you know, contained the same characters. There was a minor development in the process. As the, is this show, or as the comic slowly reveals more yes. and more about this, this war that Barney and fucking... <laughs> And, and Fred Flintstone like participated in. Yes. Oh man, it gets real grim. Real yeah, grim. real grim, real fast. <laughs> but hey, Barney got a son out of it, so yeah. um, whatever. Which I the whole Bam Bam having extra extraordinary strength. I mean, come on, it all it, it, it all clicks together pretty well. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>